Brothers and sisters, it is a privilege to be uh, in Ezra chapter 7. We will focus uh, our attention uh, really at the center and the heart of this passage in just a few moments. But uh, as we do, by way of introduction, let me start this way. I'm going to borrow an illustration from another pastor because it resonated so much with me. That's what the best illustrations do and connected with, uh, uh, with just fond memories in my own life. When I was... I grew up in a town called Westminster, South Carolina. My mom taught at Seneca Preschool in, the, in a town next door. So that's where I went to kindergarten. It was preschool. It was K-4 and K-5 there. Uh, and that's where I went to kindergarten. And it was in this old, old school building. Dad, I don't know if it's still standing. He, he may know. but uh, And it was an awesome building. And, and we would go, go in. I would go to class. My mom uh, got to pick the teachers that my sister, who's two years ahead of me, and teachers that I had, and my mom picked uh, for my sister. She had all this reason I picked so-and-so because she was this kind of teacher and that kind of... I said, oh, okay, mom, why did you pick uh, Miss McMillan and Miss McLean for my teachers? She said, because they went to lunch first. And um, so <laughs> I, I was always hungry. And so we, uh, I would go uh, to school. I would go out of school. When it was over, I'd go to my mom's classroom, and I would go into her desk drawer, and I would get change, and I would go to the teacher lounge, right? And in the teacher lounge, they had an old Coke machine. And the Coke machine, you would, you would have to put the money in, and you would turn the little lever, and it would dump out the Coke. It's 35 cents for a canned Coke. Now, some of you are like, wow, you're old. There are people in here who remember when a Coke, front row, back row, they remember when one was a nickel, all right? So... <laughs> But it was 35 cents, and you would stick the 35 cents in, you would reach down to turn it, and it wouldn't turn, right? Like, oh, man. So what did you do? You'd bang on that thing. Yeah. You'd hit it a couple times, and you'd hear the coins drop. Click, clink, click, clink, boom, and there comes the Coke, right? Dr. Pepper is what I got. Well, as one pastor said, we need to hear God's word often and continually because sometimes it takes a little bit of time for the coins to drop, right? It's in there. Sometimes the connection happens. Martin Luther said it this way, and this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into them continually, right? Until the coins drop. Well, there's two things that I want us to see this morning as we approach the passage of Ezra chapter 7. We're going to see themes here that we've seen all throughout this book so far. But we need to hear those truths over and over and over. God has set up for us, think about uh, when you were a child, have an instruction from your parents, and think about how many times they had to say to you, how many times do I have to tell you, right? right? And if you're a parent, think about how many times you've done that with your children. And as you do that with your children, you're thinking, but how many times do I have to be told certain things as well, right? Because we're so prone to wonder as we just sang together, and prone to forget, and prone to get distracted in our lives. And we need to hear over and over and to be reoriented to God's word and to God's way and to his call in our lives 
Think about the, the annual practice of Passover that they observed as we finished out Ezra chapter 6 last week. And so we need to be reminded over and over of God's truth and to be reoriented to it. And then there's those times when the truth connects like it didn't before. And, and the lights come on, right? And the word of God comes to bear and comes to be active in our lives. And that is my prayer this morning as we approach Ezra chapter 7. I'm going to just break this passage down very simply. There is no PowerPoint except for what you see right now. I sent Tyler two titles. I said, you pick the one you want. So he picked God's Word Builds God's People. I don't remember what the other one was that I sent him. And uh, so that's the title of the sermon. God's Word Builds God's People. And I want us to see two main things in this passage. The Lord's sovereignty and human action. And then I want us to see God's Word at work in the lives of His people. All right? Those are the two places where we will focus. So... By way of getting started, let's read in Ezra chapter 7. We're going to read 6 through 14, and then I'm going to skip down to 27 and 28, all right? Ezra 7, beginning in verse 6, we'll read through 14, and then we'll jump down to the end of the passage in the last two verses. This is the word of the Lord. This Ezra went up from Babylon, Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month. And which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. This is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Now skip down with me to the end, 27 and 28. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we are so thankful for your kindness, your patience with us. 
Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word. For without it, we would know nothing of you, of your mercy and your grace to us. Father, your word is the very words of life. Help us this morning to treasure it. Help us this morning to hear it, to heed it. Help us to understand it. Father, do in us, through your word, what will bring you glory, bring salvation to those who don't know you. And Father, bring sanctification to your saints and give us a fresh and a new confidence in you, our God, who is sovereign over all things, bringing all things to their rightful conclusion. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, it's in his name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see a couple of things. And the first thing that I want us to notice is, is to think about the sovereignty of the Lord that has continually been at work. This is really kind of the second movement of, of this Ezra and Nehemiah uh, book that we've been walk, that we're started to walk through and will continue to go through. If you remember all the way back in chapter one, as Tyler set the stage for us in, in that uh, very first sermon in the year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord, <clears throat> he says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And so it's the Lord that initiated everything that's happened up until this point. So we saw last week that the temple has been rebuilt and so now we're, we're moving into the second movement where we will see God's word begin to build and shape his people as his place and his house has been built. And so the Lord has been at work the whole time. This has been some 80 years. And then even between chapter 6 and now chapter 7 beginning, we're 57, 58, 60-ish years uh, have passed from chapter 6 where we ended last week to chapter 7. That's important. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But what I want you to see is that God has been at work through this whole process bringing these things about. And so you'll notice in this passage that we just read, you see this, this uh, emphasis that is there, the hand of the Lord. Verse 6, verse 9, verse 28, that the hand of the Lord has been at work. And so this is God's guiding. This is God's providence. This is God's sovereignty working things to his rightful end and to the conclusions that he wants to bring about for his glory and for his people. Yet at the same time, as we see God providentially and sovereignly at work, we see that he uses means to accomplish his ends, and he uses people. And so you'll notice, the hand of the Lord has been at work in on Ezra, verse 6, verse 9, verse 28. But if you look back at verse 6, let me just sum up 1 through, uh, through 5, and why I didn't read that, because I would absolutely butcher all those names, and it would be such a distraction if I read that to you, because you're like, that's not how you say that. And so, uh, but what we're seeing is there's this genealogy that is given of Ezra to emphasize this is someone with some credibility and credentialing to come and to proclaim the word of God to his people. This is someone that we should heed. This is someone that we should give attention to. Because if you see, as this genealogy runs through, we're going all the way back to Aaron, the chief priest. And so Ezra would not be, more than likely, a known person when he, arose, when he arrived in Jerusalem. But with this credentialing, people would give heed to him. People are like, this is someone we should listen to. And so they're emphasizing the importance of who he is, 
And then in verse 6, it says, this Ezra, right, who, who the, the author's been pointing us to, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, and he was skilled. I mean, scribe, scholar, skilled. He not only knew God's law, the law of Moses, but he was skilled at applying it. The law of Moses, the Lord, the God of Israel, and he had given, and the king granted him all that he had asked. I want you to notice that. The hand of the Lord is on Ezra. The hand of the Lord is guiding and directing things, but Ezra is at work as well. He's skilled. He's a student. He makes requests. We don't know exactly what the request was, but you can see there that it's clear, right? And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord was on him. So Ezra makes request. Ezra goes, verse 9. He's active. Ezra studies and teaches God's word, verse 10. Next, we need to see the continuation of this. Even in Artaxerxes, right? This continuation of God's providence. It's the continuation of what we just saw in the, with Cyrus in 1.1. That the Lord has stirred up the spirit of Cyrus and the Lord continues to stir up Artaxerxes' acts and the Lord works through that. He grants Ezra permission, verse 6. He makes a decree, verse 13, that we begin to read. And then he calls him there in 25 and 26, just prior to what we read, to go and to establish the teach and the judge is what he calls him to do. All right? And that's what his decree says. Brothers and sisters, we can hear these things, but not really take them to heart. We can hear these things and, and, and read it in God's word and say, wow, that is amazing that the Lord is at work. It's amazing that he's using people and, and the way that he's using them. But what about us and our lives right here, right now in Jackson County, Georgia? Right? The Lord directs the king's heart. Let me just give you two things and, and set them side by side. And so you can see how this works throughout Scripture. And then we can ask the question is, does this connect in any way to your life? Notice the pattern of Exodus that's happening in this passage. The Lord is working good for his people. And they are going to plunder the goods of Persia. Right? That's what's going to happen here for the Lord's house and for his people. Look at verse 20. You'll see there in verse 20, and I'm not going to walk systematically through this passage. I, I will confess that. But there in verse 20, as uh, this decree has been given for Ezra to, to have all that he needs, look at verse 20, and whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls, uh, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And so... Not only are they being allowed to go, but they're being funded out of the king's treasury. What do you need? What do you need to do this? This is exactly like what happens in the Exodus, right? As the people leave Egypt and they plunder the Egyptians on the way out as they are being given things. Yet, there is contrast between these two. Remember this plundering, but notice how the Lord works in two different ways. The Lord seems to soften the heart of Cyrus and Artaxerxes and guide their hearts to do what it is that he wants to do. But the Lord works in a different way through Pharaoh. If you go back and you read the beginning of the Exodus, you'll see that the Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. He's working through this, this hard providence. Yet the same outcome is, is for the good of his people. So notice this softening and this hardening that the Lord will use to deliver his people and provide what they need. 
But what about us? There are plenty of blessings and hardships in both of these examples. There's plenty of blessings that are that's happening here in Ezra. There's plenty of blessings that, that happened there in Exodus. There's plenty of hardships at the same time. There, there's hard work to be done. There's, there's long time spans. There's much hardness there in the Exodus with the Egyptians under slavery at the same time and then being delivered out of that. The Lord's provision, Christian, what you need to hear, doesn't mean easy for us. And we live in a culture that wants easy everywhere all the time. It's the lie that technology is selling us is that we can have it easy all the time everywhere and that we can just indulge in comfort. Right? But it doesn't mean easy. The second thing that I want you to notice is that there is a long arc of providence in both of these examples. It's been some 80 years since Ezra 1.1. Nearly 60 years between chapter 6 and chapter 7. The, the people of God were in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years. There's this long arc of providence that is at work in, in these situations. And we are susceptible to the temptation of thinking that God's uh, providence means not only easy, but quick as well. I mean, think about the proclivities of our culture and, and the desires for easy and quick. Easy and quick. You ever pull up to the gas station and see pay at the pump? I'm like, ah, card machine broken, pay inside? I'm like, no thanks, I'll just go to the next one. I am not walking 30 feet so that you can take 30 seconds to run my card. I'll just drive five minutes out of the way to another gas station, right, for convenience and easy. You know what I'm saying? Right? Our culture longs for that, hungers for that, it's driven by that, and that can begin to shape and to mold us as believers and think that our God should provide for us easy and quick all the time. But that's not how he works. It's not how he works. And we're susceptible to this temptation. And so, so brothers and sisters, do you trust the Lord in the midst of your current circumstances, even if they're not easy and they're not quick? Brothers and sisters, when we come to the road of God's providence, I want the express lane, right? I, I, Lord, let's make this quick. But he's often not quick. And we're tempted to doubt the Lord's goodness in our circumstances, and we need to be reminded from his word, and we need to see that he is at work in the hard and in the, in the softening, and, and, and he's at work for, for the good of his people and for his glory, and that even in his work, we need to understand that he's on his timetable, and often there's a long arc of providence that we don't understand. But the question comes in that moment of do we trust the Lord. Do we trust him in the midst of our circumstances? Second, even in the midst of God's providence and his sovereignty, there, this is not an excuse for man not to be active. That our great trust of God's sovereignty does not turn us into fatalists who don't pray and who don't act. But yet, in fact, it is because of our confidence in God's sovereignty that it fuels our prayers and our actions. 
that we are called to act, that we are called to respond to God's word in faithfulness. The Apostle Paul is a great example of, of just maintaining this tension. I'll just give you two examples. Colossians 1.29, for this I toil and struggling. What is he talking about? His ministry, right? He's just talking about his hymn that we proclaim and that we seek to present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. And he says, for this, to that end, to present everyone mature in Christ Jesus, for this I toil, struggling. Toil is hard work. Struggling with what? All his energy that he powerfully works in me. The Apostle Paul says, because God is sovereign, we get to work. He said, yet it is only through his grace and his mercy that sustains us in what he's called us to do, but it doesn't mean that we are inactive. 1 Corinthians 15.10, I worked harder than any of them. Talking about the other apostles. That it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me or with me. Brothers and sisters, a confidence in God's sovereignty, a confidence in his providence does not mean that that we are inactive. We see this in the life of Ezra. We see that he makes requests. We see that he goes. We see that he's studying. We see that he's going to be teaching God's word. So it does not at all mean that he's inactive. Christian, the great confidence in God's sovereignty and providence leads us to action and it fuels it. We pray because we know that God is sovereign and he uses his people for his purposes and he's directing all things to the rightful end in Christ Jesus. That is why we pray. If we don't believe that God is sovereign, then there's no point in praying at all. Brothers and sisters, we evangelize because we're confident that the Lord has placed us in this time, at this place, surrounded by these people, and is still calling daughters and sons to himself for glory. That's why we evangelize, because we know that the Lord has providentially placed us to live in this place, at this time, and he's put us in the spheres of influence and and the work and the community and the areas that we are with the neighbors that we have that we are surrounded with every day. He's put us here for a reason, and he is still calling people to himself, and he is still saving and making sons and daughters. So therefore, we go and we proclaim the good news of Christ to those around us because we're confident that God is going to save people and bring them to himself and make them his sons and daughters. Therefore, we have to tell of Jesus. Friend, maybe you're here this morning and you're going to hear in this sermon a lot about God's word building his people. You're going to hear in this sermon a lot about what we as God's people, how we should respond to God's word. And you may ask yourself, why do we care so much about this? We recognize that that our way of living looks strange to this world. We recognize that most of our neighbors would rather spend their, morning, their Sunday mornings in, in leisure and luxury and would rather not get up early and, and come to church and, and would not really think about giving money away when we pass a plate so that, so that more people could, could go and proclaim the good news of Jesus all across this globe. We recognize that, that that is strange to this world. But can I tell you that the reason why we are committed to that is because we have been made a part of God's people through his word coming to us and the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ and calling us to himself where we now know him as father and not just as some distant deity. And this morning that the most important thing for you is to recognize that this God that we speak of is the God that created you 
And therefore, he calls you to give an account to him for your life. And the reality is, is that all of us have sinned and rebelled against that God. And all of us stand to fall under his judgment, yet he sent his own son to live the life that we could not live, and he died a death on the cross, taking the penalty for our sin, was raised for our justification. And he says, come to me, all ye who are heavy and laden, and I will give you rest. And we are those people who have recognized we have a great need for a savior, and that is the only savior, and we've looked to him for salvation. And this morning, the greatest call for you, before you hear anything else that I would say, is to recognize your need for Christ and to throw yourself at his mercy and grace and say, save me and make me a child of God. That's why we care about these things because we have a new identity and we are no longer our our own, but we belong to him. And so brothers and sisters, that is exactly why we evangelize because we belong to him and this is what he's called us to do, to go and proclaim his kingdom to this world. Yet not only that, believers, we make war on our sin because we trust in God's sovereignty and his providence. We make war on our sin because we know that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on that day when we see Christ face to face. See, we get to work because of God's sovereignty because we know that the things that he's called us to will succeed. Maybe not on our timetable, We're seeing that clearly here. Maybe not the way that we think, but we know that what the Lord sets out to do and calls his people to do will be successful because the Lord cannot fail. If you have a hard time reconciling means and ends, just think about it this way. The Lord instructed us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But you get up in the morning And you go to work, and you make money, and you go to the store, and you buy bread. You may say, so why do I need to pray for that? Friend, do you recognize all the things that could go wrong to prevent you from being able to do all those things that I just said? One second could change your life forever, and you could be incapacitated and not able to go to work. You may be able to go to work, but one catastrophic event could change the agricultural abilities for us to have food in an instant. There's so much in God's providence that has to go right. Even if you say, hey, the farmers are are bringing in the harvest. I'm able to make money. What if there's no gas to fuel the trucks? And on and on and on we can go. There is so much that could go wrong to prevent us from even to be able to do those things. So we pray. Give us this day our daily bread. And we get up and we're obedient and we're active in our lives. It is the same with everything else that we've just talked about spiritually as well. We know that the Lord has provided salvation and will call many to himself. We know that the Lord has has called us to himself and has called us to make war on our sin. And he will bring these things to their rightful conclusion in Christ Jesus. And so as we see God's sovereignty, it gives us confidence to get busy in the work that he's called us to do. Number two, and to the heart of this passage, the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word. The temple has been rebuilt. And now is the need for the people of God to be built by God's word. 
As you see, as we'll move forward in the next few weeks, Tyler's a really nice guy. He gave me this passage. I would not have given me this passage. <laughs> you just read chapter 8, and you'd be like, I would have made Matt preach that one, and I would have kept this one if I was Tyler, right? So y'all pray for him in the next few weeks. But as we're going to see, as we move forward, God's word is to instruct and to guide and to build his people for his purposes. God has raised up Ezra for this purpose. He's raised him up. And God's word is essential for his people and for the life of his people. And as you see in verse 10, Ezra is committed to God's word. Go and, and, and look at verse 10, and it forms out the, the heart of this passage. And we'll see this surface over and over as we continue to move through and complete the study. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. We could just say it real simple. Study it, live it, teach it. And all three are vital. All three are vital. And we see that, that God has prepared and called Ezra for, for this time to do this task because he is one who is committed to the word. He studies the word. He lives the word. And he will teach the word. Brothers and sisters, as a church, we should pray, God, make us a rich soil to raise up Ezra's from our church. Let Antioch be rich soil to raise up Ezra's today. Those who would be committed to God's word. Those who would study God's word. Those who would live God's word. Those who would teach and proclaim God's word to God's people. That the Lord would raise up Ezra's. Young men in this room, look at me right now. Could the Lord call one of you? Could it be that he would call one of you to lay ambitions aside and to commit your life to such a ministry. We don't hear this enough today in our churches. There's not a call that, that says, hey, we need men who would lay down ambitions of this world and would commit themselves to proclaim God's word. We need men who are so caught up with God's word, they love God's word, that they want to live out God's word and they must proclaim God's word. That we need men who would be like Jesus and who would say, they would set their, their face like flint to the task that God has called them to do and they would not deviate to it to the right or to the left. That we need men who would be like John the Baptist and would say, you may have my head on a platter, but I will speak truth to power because thus says the Lord, that is wrong. We need men who aren't ashamed of the gospel, who would get up and who would proclaim the gospel. We need men who will give themselves to studying God's word and that they would be up late on Saturday night and they'd be up early on Sunday morning while everybody else sleeps wrestling with God's word because they know they have to stand up and they have to say, thus says the Lord to God's people in the morning. 
We need men who, who, will, who will be like David and who will stand when no one else will on account of the glory of God. And they will stand for God's glory when all else shudder. We need young men who are like Paul who will labor in God's word and they will teach God's word for years in one place because they love God's people and they are willing to be patient with them all. Brothers and sisters, we have got to be a church that values God's word. And it says we want to be a soil that will be rich to where we will, will treasure God's word, that will support the ministry of God's word, and that if God calls men here, we will be happy to support them to go to the ends of the earth and proclaim it. Go back and listen to Pastor Tyler's sermon from last week. Put down the screens and take up the word. As he's, as he's saying that last week, I, I was thinking most of the scripture that I remember and I committed to memory is from when I was 17, 18, 19 years old. Young guys, you, you may be here. You may say, I, I can't ever do that. It's dangerous to do what I'm about to do. But I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story. I hated school. Hated it. <laughs> Never wanted to go. I read more this week than I read in the first 22 years of my life. And there's no exaggeration in that. I was a lawless rebel in middle school, and I turned into a moralist in high school, and both are wrong. And God broke my heart when I was 17 years old. It showed me that I didn't care about anybody but myself. And it put a hunger for God's word in my heart. And can I tell you, it's been a long arc, and it still is, so I'm still a mess. It's been a long arc from there. But church, can I tell you that I'm, I'm so thankful for the people of God that God put around me in my life. That I, I'm thankful that when I called my mom and dad, because we were at camp, and I said, I, I think God's called me into ministry. I, I, I thanked God that it was the answering machine that picked up. <laughs> right? Because I was like, I, I, they, they might think I'm crazy. But I'm thankful that when I got home, I was just met with nothing but a warm embrace and nothing but support from that day forward. I'm thankful for my wife. I'm thankful for her family and for their support. But church, do you know that some people don't get that support from a family? That some people have worldly aspirations for their kids. I'm thankful that when, when Brandon and I moved to New Orleans, married at, at 19 and 21, we're not commending that for others, by the way, <laughs> and that, that she worked while I went to school. I finally got a part-time job later, but, but brothers and sisters, our gross income was $1,000 a month. Our rent was $300. My tuition payments were $324. We live in an inefficient apartment and our power bill was $75 a month, right? You're, you're adding it up, right? 
I wish my tuition payments today were $300 a month. <laughs> but I, I'm thankful for, for Kim Brimmer that would send us checks unexpectedly. And for others who sent money to us. I'm thankful for Barbie Ridley who, who wrote letters for, for years talking about how she was praying for me. Church, will, will we be that kind of church that, that says we value God's word? And maybe you're doing those things, but, but check in on Sam. Check in on Austin. Check in on Riley. Maybe don't even ask them if they have a need. Just trust the Lord and hand them a check. Right? Because they're good guys. They're not going to tell you they need anything. Because they're going to feel bad. But how can we encourage? You say, I don't have the financial means. That's fine. I'm telling you, I've got them in my drawer at home. The letters that people wrote and told me they were praying for me, they meant a ton. I'm not naive at all. I know the reason why I've not absolutely blown it at this point and made a shipwreck of my life is because people have prayed for me. So church, if we say we value God's word, let's support the people he calls to preach it. Brothers, those who may say, hey, uh, maybe the Lord might be calling me to that. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. But it's the best thing you could ever do. Because it's always right to honor the Lord and seek to do what he calls you to do. Brothers and sisters, But that doesn't stop here. This ministry of the word continues in the life of the church. And it continues in children's ministry back there behind us right now, or behind me. Student ministry, base groups, men's and women's studies, conversations before and after church, text messages that happen. As some have said, the word of God should reverberate throughout the whole life of the church, all week long. As we are seeking to build one another up in love, speaking the truth to one another in love, and seeking to build one another up more and more to maturity in Christ. Not to look like me. I don't want anybody to look like me. I want want us to look more like Jesus. And so we study God's word. Because we will not be effective at seeking to share God's word with others if we don't know it. And we've all been there. When someone has asked us something, I don't even know what to say right now. So often, we don't even know where to start, but we have to be committed to his word. Spurgeon said, there must be light as well as fire. Some preachers have all light, no fire. While others are all fire, no light. We want both fire and light. By fire, he means passion. And by light, he means truth. Brothers and sisters, we can't just be passionate 
and have zeal without knowledge, and we can't just have knowledge without zeal. We must be those who are committed to God's word, who study God's word, and who God's word, as one commentator said about Ezra, they don't master God's word, but God's word masters them. We have to be committed to that, and so we study God's word, and where the, where the passion, the true passion for God's word comes from is when we seek to live God's word. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. That as they study God's word and they are mastered by it, they are impassioned by God's word and they can't wait to share it with others. John Stott tells a story that I love about a pastor there in the 1940s. And they were at a panel of young pastors that they were interviewing for a job. And one of those young pastors looked and was incredibly timid and shy in the process. And he said to them in the middle of it, hey, I'm not going to be the man Martin Lloyd-Jones was in. Um, I mean, sorry, this is not Lloyd-Jones. Stott, they're speaking of those in England. And this young man said, I'm not going to be one who's going to set the Thames on fire. And that was a known statement in England, right? They're just like the Thames on fire. That's a river. And so set the whole town on fire, that kind of thing. He said, I'm not going to be one who's going to set the Thames on fire. And the pastor looked at him and he said, that's not the question that I want to know is if you'll set the Thames on fire. He said, what I want to know is if I pick you up by the scruff of your neck and I drop you in the river Thames, would it sizzle? Not will you set the world on fire, but are you on fire? With God's word. Brothers and sisters, as we study God's word, as we seek to live God's word, we are then equipped to teach God's word and to proclaim it to others and to speak the truth of God into the lives of others to minister to them. Church, we should pray for the teaching ministry of Antioch regularly. Don't ever take it for granted. Don't ever take it for granted. Just go and read some church history and you'll see as soon as people start taking it for granted, they lose it. We shouldn't take it for granted. We should pray for it. We should support it. We should pray not just for the pulpit ministry, but we should pray for the children who are behind us. We should pray for the Wednesday night with students. We should pray for men's and women's studies. We should pray for our base groups. We should pray for those conversations that are happening all throughout the week. And pray that the Lord would, would bless those uh, conversations, would bless those ministries with the fruit of his word. Brothers and sisters, we must support it and we must invest in it. And then I want you to look at one more thing. Go down to verse 25. And you, Ezra, this is within the, what the, king had, list, had sent out, write his letter. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people and the providence beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. As we think about what Ezra is called to do here and to go and to... to, to let God's word administer, build his people, and guide his people. Brothers and sisters, as those who, who are new covenant believers today, what does this look like? It looks like the word of God active in the life of the church. That what Ezra was doing is he's using God's word to instruct God's covenant people. 
And this is exactly how the Lord uses his word in the church. It instructs God's covenant people, believers, who are in covenant together, right, in the church, seeking to live according to God's word. And so it's the word, it's God's word, is what will shape us here at Antioch. It's the word that will fuel our ministry in every avenue and that we just mentioned a few moments ago. And so we must be committed as a church to proclaiming and the speaking of the word to one another. We must be committed to church discipline, and that's not just corrective, although it is corrective discipline, but formative discipline as well. We must recognize, just this afternoon, pull, pull out your church covenant. I should have brought it with me. Pull it out and just, and just read through it. And read through what we have committed to one another to do together. Of striving for unity. Of striving for holiness. Of building one another up. Of caring for one another. And it's God's word that must guide and direct all of that. And so we must know God's word and be committed to God's word, seeking to speak the truth into the lives of one another. And so this morning, before you leave this building, you've probably already had the chance, unless you got here late like I did and walked right in the back as Chris was starting. Confession. Uh, so and unless that happened, you've probably already had the chance, but you will have the chance to encourage somebody with God's word that you're going to have the opportunity before you leave here to stir someone up to love and good works. You're going to have the opportunity before you leave here to tell someone, don't grow weary of doing good. You're going to have the opportunity to tell someone, trust the long arc of God's providence and stay faithful. You're going to have the opportunity before you leave here to pray with someone and say, can I encourage you? Let's pray together. I don't know what to say to you right now, but, but I know what we can do. We can call out to our Father. Let's pray, right? You're going to have the opportunities to maybe speak a word of correction to someone and to call them back to faithfulness. You're going to have the opportunity to, to say, hey, don't forget in the midst of that, come back this way. And that's going to take grace and it's going to take love, and it's going to take humility. You know why it takes humility? Because oftentimes the most effective way we can do that is to say, you know what, I struggle with that too. So let's today together think about what does it look like to walk in faithfulness to the Lord this week in our lives in that area. You got a terrible boss, I have a terrible boss too, right? I'm not confessing that. There's People here who would probably say that about me, but, but you may, right? You may say, well, what, what, what is it like to live in faithfulness to the Lord, right? With that, in that difficult work situation. What is it like to per persevere and to not grow weary of doing good in your parenting? What does it look like to, to continue to be a faithful witness to that family member who is resistant to the gospel? What does it look like to love the Lord with, with our resources and to, and to steward them well. And on and on we can go. You'll have plenty of opportunities, brothers and sisters. But if we don't know God's word because we've studied it, if we don't seek to live God's word because we believe it, then how can we rightfully seek to instruct others in it?
Brothers and sisters, we must be those who, like Luther, would say our consciences are held captive to the word of God. And we must do it with great humility. One last warning. God's word is clear that when we teach and instruct others, we must recognize we'll be held accountable for it. James 3 says it. You, you should not, right? Those of you who seek to be teachers, you'll be judged on a, on a higher, held to a higher standard. Can I just tell you that we live in an age that not only loves quick and easy, but we live in an age that loves self-publication. We love to create stages for us to broadcast our opinions from. And can I tell you that those disembodied spaces that you occupy through social media and you pontificate from <laughs> into the ether, we will be held accountable for that as well. Not only what we say here to one another, but what we broadcast to the world. Brothers and sisters, we must be those who are mastered by God's word and who are seeking to live God's word and who are proclaiming God's word in humility and doing it rightly because we are those who love and cherish God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would use it in our lives. Father, we pray that, that we would be like the psalmist. Lord, that we would hide your word in our hearts so that we would not sin against you. Father, that we would commit to studying your word. We have such great privilege that we, that we have access to it and the ability to read it anytime we want. But Father, let us be committed to it. Let us seek to live it. Let it permeate our very beings. Let it form us more and more in the image of Christ for your glory. And Father, let us lovingly and graciously seek to instruct others in it and seek to help them apply it to their lives as they seek to help us apply it to ours. Father, let Antioch be a church that is shaped and molded by your word. Father, make us a people, as we're reading about here in Ezra, as you are making them a people by your word. Make us a people by your word for your glory. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.